The Guardian. Hello, assalamu alaikum and welcome to the September edition of Islamophonic. This month we play Hate Them or Rate Them with Douglas Murray from everyone's favourite think tank, the Centre for Social Cohesion. We learn about tensions between Muslims and Sikhs and why nobody wants to talk about it. And we find out why thrusting young Muslim women could end up marrying non-Muslims because Muslim men are rubbish. In the studio this month, we have everyone's favourite pundit and good guy, Sonny Hundle. Say hello, Sonny. Hello. Now, the Centre for Social Cohesion launched last year. It's a non-partisan think tank studying issues related to community cohesion in Britain. It claims to promote new thinking that could help bring Britain's ethnic and religious communities closer together. So what exactly has it achieved? Well, it's highlighted how British libraries encourage Islamic extremism, how Islamic extremists circumvent counter-terrorism measures by using the internet, and how two-thirds of Muslim students want to kill non-Muslims. But is this think tank really anti-Muslim? I went to their London headquarters to meet the director, Douglas Murray, an Eton and Oxford-educated, chisel-featured Anglican. That's the New York Sun's words, not mine. Hi, I've got a meeting with Douglas Murray. Thanks. Oh, hi, how are you doing? Nice to see you. Is this like no tie Thursday? It's always no tie day during the summer. (laughs) (laughs) What do you think the role of the Centre for Social Cohesion is? Well, uh, like a lot of um, non-partisan, non-party political affiliated you know, think tanks. We get to um, do independent research. Um, we get to try to influence government, media, and general public thinking about important issues. Uh, we can do something that government can't. We can ask questions that government can't ask. And what do you think your achievements have been this year? What are the notable sort of landmarks, if you like? Uh, I think the thing I'm probably most proud of so far this year is our work on uh, domestic violence and honour violence in the UK. Uh, we brought out a report, the... Um, crimes of the community, honour-based violence in the UK, which looked at all communities uh, in Britain. I suppose the reason why I say I'm proud of it is not just because of the research we did and the women's refuges we were able to get round and the interviews we were able to get, but because I think since then um, the government has started to, and opposition parties, have really started to take this seriously and there's been some terrific you know, feedback from government and, and, and from p- uh, political parties. And I sort of feel like it was already on the agenda, but I feel proud that we've put it a bit higher up the agenda. Some people would put you very firmly in the sort of, to the right of the political spectrum. Would you agree with that? Um, well, there's my personal politics and then there's the institution's politics. My colleagues are by no means um, uh, right-wingers, as you say. Um, I don't particularly think of myself as a right-winger. Um, I'm a, um, a small-c conservative and a social liberal, um, which means that I'm... Uh, probably out of favour with all political parties, um, but I certainly—I mean, I don't personally never have done particular uh, affiliated myself with any political party. Um, and yes, I mean, pe- people tend to think if you're certainly if you're not a Muslim and you're interested in the issues of uh, Islamist fundamentalism and so on, people tend to assume it's because you're coming from a right-wing perspective. You do focus a lot on Muslims. What is it about Muslims that interests you so much? It's fascinating. I mean, I- Islam as a faith is fascinating. But we don't focus on the faith um, aspect of it. We focus on the communities within Britain. At the moment, um, uh, like it or not, uh, Buddhists in Britain are not getting all that much attention on them because 
no Buddhist has done anything particularly remarkable uh, in terms of um, a violent act in recent years. Now, I and no one, certainly no one here, would ever say that Muslims as a whole uh, should be held responsible for that. And I think that we and other uh, people who do similar work try very hard to make sure that the Muslim community, as it were, or Muslim communities, are not labelled because of the actions of a few uh, terrible and bad individuals. You seem incredibly reasonable. Why do you think the Centre for Social Cohesion winds people up? <laughs> I wasn't aware it did, I have to say. Uh, I know it winds up certain writers in The Guardian who um, take pod shots at us and at me on uh, occasion, um, but I um, rejoice in The Guardian's ability to wind me up. So, um, uh, the, um, That's what we're good at. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people with Islam have been confused. They think because, obviously, in Britain, most people who are Muslim come from a, you know, a non-white ethnic background, that therefore anyone who's interested in the area of uh, Islamic uh, fundamentalism or of, or of um, general um, Muslim attitudes in Britain is beating up on people with darker skin. That is, that is a very prominent left-wing uh, sort of white uh, perspective about this. I think it's starting to get cleared up, but there is a, still an overlap about it. And you see it in the um, use of terms like uh, Islamophobic and so on, an attempt to elide um, uh, uh, always uh, unforgivable criticism of people because of the color of their skin with criticism of beliefs. And as I say, although criticism of beliefs should always stop short of, you know, any form of kind of incitement or anything like that, nevertheless, it is one of the most important things in a free society that we can debate ideas, do it, do so openly, do so freely. Uh, free inquiry is one of the things I rejoice in most. Now, you're one organisation uh, looking at Muslims and looking at Islam in Britain. And, of course, there are lots of other bodies who do exactly the same, but from a Muslim perspective. So if you don't mind, we're just going to play a word association game. <laughs> Where I give you the name of an organisation and you just have to, you know, tell me the first thing that comes to mind. If you really want to keep it concise, we're going to call this game Hate Them or Rate Them. So Ah. Muslim Council of Britain. Presumptuous. Quilliam Foundation. Admirable. The Islamic Society of Britain. Dubious. The Muslim Public Affairs Committee. Repugnant. Radical Middle Way. Questionable. And overfunded. Uh, The Muslim Association of Britain. Repellent. British Muslims for Secular Democracy. Um, Not very active so far. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, City Circle. Interesting. Islamic Sharia Council. Awful. Hizbut Tahrir. Where do I even begin? Do you really want to give me only one or two words for Hizbut Tahrir? Well, I I have to say, not a busted flash anymore, sadly. I wish I could just say busted flash. Douglas Murray, thank you very much. Sonny, you were making so many facial expressions during that interview. What comes to mind when you hear a very reasonable sounding Douglas Murray, you know? Well, Douglas Murray. He says he's not a neoconservative. (laughs) He wrote a book called Neoconservatism Why We Need It. Yeah, I mean, I find that really funny how he doesn't want to be associated with the right, but he should be part of it, you know, if he wants to be right wing, then that's his. And he is pretty much right wing. I mean, Civitas, which. uh, Center for Social Cohesion is part of um, is a right-wing think tank. You know, they went on this um, big thing about left-wing uh, political correctness. Anthony Brown was their guy who ran it. So, and he's pretty right-wing. And there was just one other point that which which I found really curious. I mean, he said, you know, that their report on uh, on abased killings was. Uh, 
you know, groundbreaking and stuff. I mean, it was a good report, went through it. I'm not going to deny that. But I think, actually, there's been a whole load of other information being put out by um, Asian women groups themselves about this problem. There's a lot of people uh, who've talked about it, including myself, loads of times. So actually, these guys are jumping on a bandwagon, which has been there for a while. Now, think tanks seem particularly concerned with Muslims. Um, Why do you think that is? Well, I think there's a lot of issues that have come up in recent years. You know, for example, uh, British identity, uh, British culture, where we go from here, uh, politics in terms of how Muslim radicals as well as ordinary Muslims, how do they how do they relate to the political system? Uh, you know, talking about counterterrorism, talking about um, dealing with sort of, you know, radicalism within within our communities, within Muslim communities, as well as, you know, BNP uh, backlash and all the rest of it. So there's a whole lot of issues that have come out, which various organizations have looked at, you know, the Fabian Society have looked at, Britishness, uh, Demos have looked at how we can uh, engage with radical Muslims, uh, and the Center for Social Cohesion, these guys focus specifically on you know, how bad are these Muslims? (laughs) Now, we did play hate them or rate them with Douglas, and I did like that game. So if it's all right, I'd like to play with you too. (laughs) I'll try my best. One word, one word. One word, okay. Demos. Good. The Fabian Society. Needs to be, uh, oh, one word. Um, uh, Okay, policy. Socialists. (laughs) Socialists, all right. Policy exchange. Annoying. The Centre for Social Cohesion. Uh, Disingenuous. Oh, Fawcett Society. Admirable. Which think tanks do you think are really doing a good job? Not necessarily with Muslims, but looking at this whole idea of Britishness and belonging and, you know, cohesion. There isn't that much going on. It's really, it's really bad. I think actually if you read uh, thinking online in terms of blogs and uh, articles on comment is free, they're much more interesting. I'm not sure that the think tanks have really uh, engaged with a lot of stuff that's going on out there. Sunny is Sikh. And I'm Muslim, and we get along just fine. But it's not the case elsewhere. A new report due out this month claims there are escalating tensions between young Sikhs and young Muslims, and that the government needs to pay more attention to relationships between these two groups. I spoke to the project director and report author, Fiaz Mogul, of Faith Matters. Fiaz, uh, you've been um, leading a project for the last couple of months now. Can you just tell us a bit more about it, please? Yes, uh, the, the project is, has been called uh, the Cohesive Communities Programme. And it was a pr- project that I devised um, within the organization which looks at trying to ascertain what are the potential issues on the ground between Sikh and Muslim uh, community members. It was a project looking to take 30 members over to Northern Ireland within Corrymeela. Because of the background of that, of that community and its work with, uh, within Northern Ireland, we thought it would be a good setting to do some facilitation work to find out some of the issues and tensions as a starting point to try to redress um, I would say localized issues that do ebb and flow, but which are always there. There's a constant underlying tension between both communities in some local areas. Now, Fiaz, you've just talked about Sikh and Muslims, and when people normally think about improving community relations and, and interfaith work, it's always Muslims and Christians and Muslims and Jews. Yeah. Sikhs and Muslims might come as news to some people. Yes. Indeed, indeed. Uh, in fact, um, there are also tensions between Sikhs, Muslims and Hindus. Um, and, and so, you know, the, the, it's beyond just the three Abrahamic faiths and people always focus on them because they think it's the easiest strands and there's a lot of commonality. Well, there is also a lot of commonality between 
uh, Sikhs and Muslims historically and Hindus and Muslims and Sikhs, but the reality is there are also recurring and ongoing tensions. And there are tensions that are, in my opinion, growing and dividing these communities wider and wider over a period of time. What are those tensions? Um, if we look at the Sikh and Muslim community, uh, for example, I mean, the tensions around 9-11-7-7 where um, attacks on Sikhs and Muslims have meant that, in essence, some, some within the Sikh community have said that, you know, uh, Muslim voices have not been uh, speaking out when they've been attacked. And I think this is the whole issue of uh, a singular Muslim voice speaking out on issues that other communities have picked up on. But the reality is it's very difficult. Muslim communities are not singular. They're very disparate. Um, you know, there are different voices, there are different themes. The other element is um, they've also talked about the issue of uh, the potentially forced conversions. Um, this is an issue that's been uh, looked at by some agencies, but it's it's an ongoing issue which is causing very serious uh, gripes within the Sikh community. And the third element is, is this issue of, well, uh, communities like the Muslim community are getting funding. But the reality is... Um, Obviously, you know, with the terrorist incidences, um, the money is directed around preventing violent extremism. But the Sikh community, to some degree, have, an, have a real basis to say that, you know, very little capacity building work has gone into them. And they feel that their voice is not being heard. And I think this is, this is causing a lot of the tension. Their voice is not being heard. They're not actively, if I can say, being addressed on issues of, you know, like I said, the forced conversions issue, etc., the reality is, whether they are right or wrong, I think that these need to be addressed. And our project tried to raise these so that some way we could address them. So basically, there's a lack of solidarity. Uh, Sikhs feel that when um, somebody, uh, when, a, when a Sikh man or woman is attacked, or either physically or verbally, that Muslims don't do enough to condemn that. Um, also, you're saying that the uh, stories about forced conversions, and there's a lot of sort of anecdotal evidence yeah. to suggest that this is going on. Yeah. But the Metropolitan Police and other major police forces in the West Midlands and Greater Manchester, for example, have said that a complaint has never been made, and without a complaint there can't be an investigation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and again, this has been well documented on, on blogs and um, news sites as well. And there's also, as you said, the sort of economic issue as well. You know, yeah. Muslims get a lot of money. They get a lot of attention from the government. They get a lot of attention from the media. What effect does that have on Sikhs? Are you concerned that this is having a negative effect on some members within Sikh communities? It is. It is, it is, it, 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 it is causing a corrosion in the way small members within the Sikh community, mostly young male Sikhs, um, are seeing the other, and they're really seeing Muslim communities as the other. And um, it is this feeling that, um, you know, within within the program itself, there were comments made um, uh, which were very kind of wide-ranging towards the Muslim community around why, are, why is the Muslim not community not doing this? You know, the Muslim community has real issues it needs to address. Why is it not working with us on issues? So there was this feeling that there was a lot of finger-pointing going on towards Muslims, and actually, it's very deep-rooted. And the reason why it's deep-rooted is because these tensions have not been addressed or they've not been raised and then actively trying to be dealt with. And it's come to the point where some of the comments that were made got a reaction from the Muslim participants as being exact replicas of British National Party comments made to Muslim communities or rather to the wider community about Muslims. And so you can see the tensions that arise in the way that some of the comments are made. And these are deep-rooted tensions. These are, you know, they start off with the history of what happened in India four, five hundred years ago under the Mughals, my namesake, in fact. And, and essentially, they work their way right to the current moment. 
Uh, and so that's pretty deep-rooted stuff. The forced conversion thing is particularly interesting. I know that many people have tried to look into this and establish what has been going on or to try and speak to people or to try and speak to some of the women that may have been affected. And they have, there hasn't really been any progress. But I know that it's something that crops up over and over again on Sikh websites, sort of UK-based Sikh websites. Yeah. Um, to what extent are these grievances radicalising young Sikh males? The, 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 this, is, this was the main thrust of some of the issues that came up. This was the main thrust of it, was this issue of forced conversion. Um, and it is playing a central role in the argument. It's playing a central role in the arguments put forward uh, by uh, a small section of, of of Sikh males, mostly, that you know the forced conversion issue is happening, and this is for them. It is turning them. It is turning them in a direction which really is closing the door, in I would say any kind of dialogue. And on the flip side, Muslim. Uh, communities, in my opinion, are completely blind to some of the issues and tensions within the Sikh community. And, and you know, this blindness, this this lack of understanding actually can also aggravate the situation because, rightly or wrongly, if perceptions are put out there towards um, Muslim participants in our project, the response was, well, we never knew this before. And it aggravated the situation because Sikh participants were saying, we want an answer on issues. And it's difficult for the participants from the Muslim side to give an answer because they're not representatives. Mm. But the reality is you could see the level of angst. So basically, Muslims have a lot to answer for. They're not aware of some of the issues, or if they are, they're just not dealing with them. And they're not actually dealing with the perceptions. Is that what you're saying? They're oh, not dealing with the perception uh, that the reason they may be get this hostility is because they don't realize how much help they're getting in inverted commas, um, how much funding they're getting. Uh, and it may be that people within Sikh and Hindu communities also have issues regarding employment, discrimination, um, think, housing, education, that sort of thing. I think, I, think, I, think the, I think Muslim communities, I would say, to put it in the sense that they've got a lot to answer for, actually is not quite right. It's not right. The, the, I think the issue is... Um, the Muslim, Muslim community is very clearly from the participants and from the stuff that came out from our mm. project really feel under enormous pressure, whether it's media pressure, whether it's internal pressures, whether it's the war and terror issues, so-called, and a whole range of issues that are impacting on Muslim communities. For them, the kind of, you know, the, the, the hatches are down because there's an enormous amount of pressure. This is why I think the project is really important because, and I think other projects need to pick this up, is because, you know, we need to be proactive. We, in terms of all communities, particularly Muslim communities, to some degree need to be a bit more proactive to say, let's try to understand. And, we, you know, Muslim community members will not like what they hear, but the reality is, rightly or wrongly, we need to give the platforms by which people hear them and then address them. So what happens now? Well, um... I think for us, it's a case of we're making some recommendations on the back of our report. And the mm. key three themes of recommendations we will make are we should have t uh, 10 commissioners nationally, five uh, Sikh commissioners, five Muslim commissioners that will work on a national basis to try to look at what the tensions are, work with government, um, and essentially be the link between local communities and, and, and government and local authorities. That's the one thing we're trying to promote. So, and the second thing is we're going to, we're pushing for a national Muslim and Sikh media group. And that's something that'll come together uh, and make statements when there are issues affecting both communities or when there are tensions affecting both communities. Mm. That's a good start. The third thing I'm pushing forward, in uh, and Faith Matters are pushing for, is that 
um, CLG uh, said... That's communities and local government. Communities and local government send a message out to local authorities which have large Sikh and Muslim populations yeah. to say that, you know, they have money under local area agreements mm. and other pots, but they need to ring fence small amounts for community chess grants to ensure that there are projects that actively get Muslims and Sikhs to work together at mm. a local level. And the fourth thing I'm trying to promote um, is this issue of trying to get an independent research project to look at this issue of forced conversions. And again, maybe the, the, the Department for Community and Local Government can pick this up. But the response from DCLG, from the Department for Community and Local Government, is a really positive one. And in my opinion, they've been very receptive to this. And I think that these four proposals in time will be picked up and pushed forward. So I see a real result on the back of what was a minimal investment for, for, for government sources. But also, in my opinion, this is a good first step. That was Fiaz Mogul of Faith Matters talking about cohesive communities due out later this month. In the studio is Sunny Handel. Sunny, what's your understanding of the problems between Sikhs and Muslims and Muslims and Hindus? Well, they've been around for a long time. That's one thing. I remember when I was at school uh, in Hounslow, this is in the 90s, uh, early 90s, and there was uh, big gang fights between Muslims and and. Sikhs then. So this is not anything new. And I'll actually say that things have probably improved uh, over the last decade, uh, you know, because these people have grown up and sort of realized that this this kind of stupid fighting isn't uh, really getting anywhere. But, you know, like I said, part of the country, uh, various parts of the country, uh, certainly in places like Slough still, there are issues between Muslims and Sikhs. But they will always be there because people will use something like religion to argue. It's not like these people know anything about their religion. They're just using it as an excuse to fight. Can you give us some examples? What kind of things are they fighting over? Fia said that there's a feeling that there's a lack of solidarity between Sikhs and Muslims. So after 9-11, Sikhs were targeted and the Muslims didn't come out and condemn this enough. There's also concern that the government is giving too much funding and too much attention to Muslims, but we know why they're getting this much money and this much attention. Mm. And then also there is that, oh, I don't really want to call it an urban myth because no case has ever been brought to trial, but, but the stories about forced conversions... Yeah. yeah. So there's and grooming. Th yeah. So there's various issues on on the ground these days. Forced conversions is uh, uh, this big issue in the sense that people talk about it in hushed tones, you know. And but saying that, you know, I've seen videos circulated about Hindus, Hindu extremists among Sikhs, saying these Hindus are trying to take over us, you know, and all the rest of it. So this one actually originated a long time ago because it was a, an article in a newspaper, local newspaper, um, about a decade ago, which said that a Muslim group was being paid something like five to ten thousand pounds for every Sikh or Hindu girl that they converted over. Now, that was never based in facts. No one could ever find who published this leaflet. And since then, it's carry on, carried on for a long time, and people still think this is a, is a recent story. Uh, and then there was an attempt by various Hindu and Muslim groups more recently, about a year ago, to sort of bring it out again and say, look, this is a big issue. Again, they could not find any specific issues. Now, I'm not going to deny that there have been examples where, you know, Sikhs and Muslim 
have gone out together, you know, and they, they dump each other or whatever, or, or, or the, the guy asks a girl to convert because she's not Muslim, you know, and all these things blow up into, you know, forced uh, attempts at forced conversion and all the rest of it. Mm. And there probably have been instances where girls have been kidnapped or, you know, um, beaten and all the rest of it, which happens across the community. This is a community-wide problem mm. as it is, not just a, a Muslim's T- specifically targeting Sikhs sort of an issue. Um, but basically these cases aren't being reported to the police. I think if you look at at, at violence against women within uh, within the Asian community, that is broadly not being reported yeah, anyway. Right. You know, domestic violence, uh, women being kidnapped, you know, uh, kept home as sex slaves, all this kind of stuff happens in Britain now. Mm. No one talks about it. Mm. But when there is an a religious element involved yeah. suddenly all these community leaders want to get involved right, okay. because it's something that they can use as a way to you know talk about and say or point fingers but when it comes to problems within their own community they don't want to admit to it so there's all these power plays going on right mm. and then that that is a problem with Muslims as well as it is with Sikhs so for example when they talked about solidarity that's a problem Mm. Because actually none of the community leaders, so-called community leaders, like each other. So the Hindu community groups hate the Sikh ones, the Sikh ones hate the Muslims, the Muslims <laughs> right. hate the Sikhs. And, uh, you know, it's, yeah. it's a fact. You know, they don't really have much time for each other. Mm. So what happens is when someone, there is a, a, an attack on a Muslim group or a, or a, or a Sikh person or whatever, yeah. they don't really want to get involved. They mm. don't really care. Mm. You know, they're only out looking out for their own. Mm. And only then will they say something. So... I think solidarity amongst Muslim, uh, sorry, amongst religious groups mm. is a problem, um, but it's not a new problem. It's been happening. It's 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 an issue with Asians for what you know, <laughs> five hundred years. <laughs> Great. On from one note of optimism to another. Every year, hundreds of thousands of people tie the knot. But how many of those are Muslim couples? I couldn't say because not all Muslims register their marriage. Sometimes there's not even a written record of the marriage having taken place, which can cause problems when things go wrong, and they do. Up to now, Muslims alone among all religious groups do not register their religious buildings in order to perform marriages that conform to English law. But a proposed new Muslim marriage contract encourages registration. It also removes the requirement for a marriage guardian for the bride, who, as an adult, can make up her own mind about who to marry. It will enable the wife to initiate divorce and retain all her financial rights agreed in the marriage contract. It also forbids polygamy, whether in the UK or abroad. Now, it sounds eminently sensible, and one of the contract's authors, Cassandra Balchin, agrees. When you don't know the terms and conditions of the marriage, um, there can be confusion and discussion and, and debates later, either during the marriage or if, unfortunately, there's a, there's a breakdown in the marriage there can be confusion as to what are the terms and conditions of the marriage. So in a sense, it's a preventive measure, clarifying for the couple and, in, and making a space for them to mutually agree how this marriage is going to function. Um, I see that as a pre- preventive measure because it enables the couple to discuss things beforehand. Um, and when you're clear between two people about how something's going to work, the chances for there being unpleasant surprises later are greatly reduced. It's interesting that across Muslim countries and communities outside of Britain, there has been a centuries-long push by um, liberals and by women to demand 
documentation of marriages. And there is a historical practice in Muslim societies of writing the marriage contract down. So it's quite surprising in the British context that there is a practice of not writing things down. And you have to ask why that practice is there. Who's saying that this is Islamic or whatever? Who's promoting an unwritten marriage contract? Very often, an unwritten marriage contract works to the disadvantage of women because it's generally women who have to prove their rights within the marriage. Um, so this practice of an unwritten marriage contract is actually very surprising, and it goes against the, the trends within other Muslim contexts. So there's very much a need to have a written marriage contract. Now, you, you just said that um, quite often it's up to the woman to prove the rights she has within a marriage. So this contract would have gone some way to redressing the balance. When you launched the contract, what kind of support did you get? And how has that been followed through in terms of developing this model? This is very much a proposed model. This is not necessarily the end product because what we really hope to happen is for there to be debate. None of the problems that currently exist in terms of unhappy marriages can be solved by a simple piece of paper. It's a matter of how people relate to each other, how husbands and wives and, and more broadly families relate to each other. Um, that can only be sorted by a change in attitudes. And therefore we're hoping that this suggested contract will be a process by which there can be debate and discussion within the community. There seems to be a growing gap in Britain between the young men and the young women, um, which is raising you know, several questions. Um, the gap is arising for various social reasons, but to put it very briefly, um, you have young, educated, dynamic Muslim women um, who are finding it very, very difficult to find a suitable marriage partner. And therefore, we're seeing an increasing number of mismatches where you have um, a young woman who ends up marrying um, a young man who may not be as educated as she is, who may not be as professionally successful as she is. There's no harm in that as long as there's an agreement and an understanding prior to the marriage that, look, this is how this is going to work. Um, and experience shows that the more discussion there is prior to the marriage in terms of how this is going to work, the better there are chances that the marriage will be successful. And after all, that's what the aim is. So there's no question that this is the proper way of doing it. Um, indeed, I would say that to, to have a situation where the wife's status is uncertain is un-Islamic. Um, there's definitely a need to, to write things down. Cassandra, thank you very much. But there have been criticisms of the contract. Sheikh Ibrahim Mogra from the Muslim Council of Britain told BBC Radio 4's Sunday programme about his concerns. Sharia and religious law is the domain of the theologians and the jurists and they are the experts and they will apply the laws according to their knowledge and their understanding. That cannot be read as religious bullying. One cannot respond to a surgeon who recommends surgery X, Y and Z on an individual and said that is medical bullying. It might seem to be at odds with British culture. There are a few things that indeed are totally incompatible that are British culture but are against Muslim law. For instance, the consumption of alcohol. 
And this is a similar attitude that many jurists have taken with regards to the conditions to the marriage, for instance. If the law requires the woman to be represented by her male guardian, that is the law. Sunny, what, what do you think about having a Muslim marriage contract, even though you're not Muslim? Well, I think, you know, you have to have a British marriage contract uh, for a start because mm. um, it ensures that you get all your rights uh, in the UK, legal rights, mm. you know, social rights and all the rest of it. Um, so I don't have a problem with it. I just think that women should be very aware of the rights that they have legally in Britain and that they should just make sure that they get married uh, legally along with having a Muslim marriage. Yeah. You know, and I'm pretty sure that everyone who listens to this <laughs> podcast probably <laughs> will be anyway. Yeah. Now, the yeah. MCB did support the idea of a contract, a Muslim marriage contract, but then it backed off and their retreat was seen as a blow to the contract. It is. I, I think the problem is this. A lot of, and I think probably say most, Non-Muslims in this country have a negative view of Muslim marriages or Muslim uh, Sharia, obviously, yeah. we know that. And a lot of it comes down to the way that they perceive women to be treated. Mm. And it's obvious that if you are going to have put ex- extra stringence on women mm. or going to give them less than men, mm. then, you know, then people are going to see that as sexist. Yeah. Right. So... Clearly, that that was seen as something that needed to reflect more British society. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess there was a backlash from people saying, "Oh God, you're tinkering with Islam." Yeah, you know. Um, well, when they clearly weren't weren't trying to do that, mm. um, you know. But so the MCB being very uh, not careful being very now. <laughs> sorry, careful. Well, they're not very brave, put it that way. The MCB doesn't provide any proper leadership in this country. Mm. All they do is represent some middle, middle-aged sort of men from Bradford or whatever. And that's what it comes down to. They can't, you know, there's a power struggle going on within the organization. But frankly, it's still dominated by the old God. And inevitably, there was a backlash. And then they said, oh, no, we can't, you know, deal with this. Mm. So it, you know, anyone who sees them as progressive should realize that actually they're not. And actually, if anybody does want to have a proper marriage they should go with they should register with legally anyway that that should just be standard but why do you need the support of an organization like the mcb for example for your project to be successful you shouldn't do i think what they what the muslim institute wanted to do was sort of say look there is a lot of uh, the, the, there is a consensus around the fact that things need to change mm. um and because of that they brought the mcb in um along with a lot of other muslim groups like city circle uh you know and and others and it's a shame that the mcb backed out i think actually it probably won't make that much of a difference in the sense that the in not in London, but in those communities up north where it's very concentrated, with a lot of Muslims living together, and they don't really, uh, there isn't that much awareness of the law among, especially amongst brides who come over here. Mm. You know, those are the people that we need to reach out to, and unfortunately, those are the ones that are not going to be reached out to. Whatever, I mean, it really comes down to people within the communities uh, taking more responsibility. The women saying, "Look, we need to educate our own women, otherwise." You know, they, they, they can face problems later on. Cassandra seemed to be saying that Muslim women are making great strides in education and employment and that their male counterparts are lagging behind. Um, and she also seemed to be suggesting that there could be a day that, you know, Muslim women look at 
who's being offered to them in matrimonial stakes and say, actually, you know what? I think I'd rather marry a non-Muslim. Do you see that coming? Do you see that happening? I see that happening now, actually, and not just with Muslims, but, you know, with other communities as well. You will have a situation where uh, the women are much more educated. They're not going to, you know, deal with... uh, men who are sexist or whatever you know Punjabi Punjabi culture is incredibly sexist uh, speaking as a Punjabi <laughs> and a, a lot of my uh, friends women say look I'm, these Punjabi guys are just you know still quite backward in their thinking why would anybody they're c- controlling they want to dominate the woman all the rest of it why would anybody want to be with them and I see their point you mm. know so and I think the other problem is obviously that uh, if Women become more educated than men, which is the case anyway in a lot of communities, especially Tower Hamlets, Bangladeshi communities here, because the men go early on to start working in restaurants and other professions to bring money to the house. And women end up being educated. Then when they get educated, they don't really want to marry someone who's... Works in a restaurant, maybe? Works in a restaurant, because they have higher aspirations. Mm. They're working as accountants or professionals, you know, in media or... Uh, in finance so it's a fact of life it's going to happen you know and I think what we should do is focus on what woman what a woman wants you know not really get hung up about you know oh my god you know they're marrying someone out of the community I mean frankly it doesn't bother me I mean my parents will have an issue but I'm not that fussed (laughs) about who I married to be honest would you describe yourself as a feminist yes Excellent. That's what we like. Sunny Handel, thank you for joining us in the studio. You've been listening to Islamophonic. It was produced by Peter Sale and presented by me, Riaz Atbat. Jazakallah for listening and Ramadan Kareem wherever you are. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.